Father, we ask that you would flood us with your light. There are places of darkness in our souls. The darkness of sin that we do not yet see. The darkness of sin that we do see but are not yet willing to bring to the light. The darkness of just sometimes despair and emotions. The darkness of life. The valley of the shadow of death. But we thank you that you are the light. And darkness cannot overcome the light, but light overcomes the darkness. And Lord, if we would expect light to overcome darkness out there, then we ought to be eagerly begging you to overcome the darkness in here. So we ask that you would do that. Lord, I am acutely aware of my deficiency and my weakness and my ability to proclaim the word of God with any force in my own strength. I am doing nothing but shooting spitballs against an M1 tank apart from the working of the Spirit of God. So I pray that your spirit would work and he would enlarge in my capabilities. So I do not pray preach naturally but supernaturally. And that he would enable us to hear not just naturally but supernaturally. That you would speak to us and that you would change us and that we would flourish under more light. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can grab a seat. Because of what light and darkness do and are, we often see light as representing um, that which is good, right? Hope, security, happiness. We think of good when it comes to the light. And when we think of darkness, often we think of that which is not good. We think of sorrow, despair, sin, sometimes depravity, things that are bad. So light and darkness represent various things. There is a reason that a child wants to have the night light left on because they're scared of darkness. We're going to have to have Ian get over that before he goes to Wheaton. <laughs> there is something called seasonal affective disorder to where if you don't get enough sunlight you can feel depressed in the winter, winter months. Sometimes we'll say, thank you, you really brightened up my day. And every night I get on my knee and I sing this song to my wife, you light up my life. Now that's the second lie of this introduction. But we use those metaphors, right? We'll say thank you for shedding light on that situation. Or conversely, somebody might ask us, hey, what would you think of that movie? And you say, oh, man, that was a very dark movie. It was a dark comedy. It was a dark novel. Sometimes we'll, see, we'll say, I feel like I'm just in a cloud of darkness. I'm simply trying to make the point that our everyday language is laced with the metaphors of light and darkness. 
But not just everyday metaphors. Do you know the language of Scripture itself fully employs frequently throughout the whole canon of Scripture the metaphor of light and darkness? Genesis chapter 1. There was darkness upon the face of the deep. Do you remember that? And then God said, let light shine into the darkness, and there was light. And God stood back and he said, that is good. The writer of Ecclesiastes, the wise man Solomon, said that the fool walks in darkness. He further elaborates in Proverbs 4.19, he says, The way of the wicked is darkness, and they know not that which they stumble over in darkness. In Romans chapter 1, fast forward into the New Testament, when it talks about in, in chapter 1 the downward spiral of depraved humanity outside of Jesus, it says, And their hearts were darkened. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that the God of this world, small g God, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe lest they should see the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it's why the Scripture describes the experience of one who's become a Christian as one who has been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That we are now qualified to share in the inheritance in the saints in the light. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This miracle happened. The God who said, let light shine in the darkness at creation shines light into a darkened heart so that they might see the glory of the God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when that happens then, the Scripture tells us, Ephesians 5.8, that we are no longer darkness, but we're now light of the Lord. He says then, walk as children of the light. He says, for the fruit of light is everything that, everything that is good and right and true. And then he says, take no, no part any longer in the unfruitful works of darkness. At the end of Ephesians, he says, hey, this battle that we fight down here, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness in high places. And I'll tell you what. He says that what you whispered in the dark will be shouted in the light. Which is going to be a, that's going to be a horrific, shocking, appalling day for unrepentant gossips. Because he says, what you said in secrecy will be proclaimed publicly. And that's why he tells us as believers now, put that stuff aside. Romans 13, 12. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And I'll end with this. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that your good works will glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, don't hide that light under a bushel. Now, undoubtedly, that was probably the most Scripture ever in the history of an introduction of a sermon. And I hope you don't feel like you've drank out of a fire hydrant. But I'm simply trying to make the case that the language of everyday human life and the language of Scripture 
is laced with the dual metaphors of light and darkness. So when Jesus Christ comes along and says, I am the light of the world, we shouldn't scratch our heads too much and say, well, what's he getting at? I think we already have an idea, do we not, when he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness. And so that is the theme, the title of this message. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. It's one of the great I am's. I am the light of the world. And specifically, we're going to see three things from this text. We're going to see what Jesus claims. Then we're going to see what Jesus demands. And then we're going to see what Jesus promises. What he claims, what he demands, and what he promises. So first of all, what Jesus claims. Jesus does not say, hey, I am a light. If you need some light, there's a bunch of places you can go for that light. I'm one of the possible sources of many. Does Jesus say, I am a light in the world? Jesus says quite definitively and quite dogmatically, I am the light of the world. That's what he's asserting. And these these Jewish people listening to him, these Pharisees and religious leaders, they knew exactly what he was asserting. They knew that he was asserting this, that the God who said let light shine into darkness day one of creation is none other than he himself. That the God of the burning bush is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That the great I am, as we saw a few weeks ago, of Exodus 3 is Jesus Christ. They knew exactly what he was asserting, and that's why the Gospel of John begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but guess what? And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life, it goes on to say, and the life was the light of men. The early Christians had this simple yet profound confession Jesus is Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. But they also said Jesus is Theos. Theos, theology, the science of God. Jesus is Theos. Jesus is God. Now, I don't know if you saw this on the news. Monday, CNN's Don Lemon was talking to Chris Cuomo. They're talking about some issues that are going on. And, and, and Lemon said, well, Jesus admittedly was not perfect. Did you guys see that? And of course, what he's really saying is Jesus isn't God. Now, Jesus (laughs) never said that. He was imperfect. He was quite clear about the opposite. But the rejection of the kyrios of the lordship and the theos and the godship of Jesus that's prevalent today is nothing new. That's exactly what's going on in this chapter. And these Cats were fulfilling what it says in John 1, 1, or John 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, refused to receive him. And this is the thing, this is the thing. Against all mounting evidence, they refused to accept Jesus is God incarnate. And here's the thing about committed unbelief. Committed unbelief will never have enough evidence to overcome it. 
If you want to stay unbelieving, you will stay unbelieving. They were guilty of unbelief. And when someone is committed, it's a committed posture to unbelief, they employ one, two, or three of the following tactics to evade obvious guilt. And they're guilty of unbelief. One tactic that people often do is I'm simply going to eliminate and get rid of the incriminating witness. That's why Detroit River, a few miles from here, probably has a number of people in it with cement shoes on. Get rid of the witness. And time and time again, they try and do that with Jesus, right? At the end of this chapter, they don't like what he's saying. They, they try and stone him. A mob is after him, and Jesus just ghosts them by disappearing into the temple, which it's, you'd have to be God to do that anyway, right? A mob trying to stone you. But, but they try to eliminate incriminating witnesses. Tactic one they employed. Tactic two, if you can't destroy a key witness, well, here's what you can do. Discredit him. They try and do that in verse 41 when they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. Well, what's the implication? You were. We reject what's being said about the virgin conception of your mother. Then, failing in that way to evade their guilt, they can't destroy him because Jesus will not die until it's time. They can't discredit him. This is what they do third of all. They try to have a witness thrown out on some technicality, right? It happens all the time. There's, the person's guilty, but because court protocol wasn't followed, the, person is, the, the case is thrown out. Here's how they try and do it in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What are they getting at? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, how many witnesses were required for a conviction in an Old Testament court of law? Two, two or three witnesses, it says, right? So they're saying, well, your, your, your testimony is no good because you're standing there alone. Okay, here's Jesus' answer, verse 17. He says, okay, we can play that game. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I agree with you. But listen how he goes on. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and who? The Father who sent me bears witness about me. So in other words, he says, guess what? There are two witnesses, me and the Father. <laughs> I am, what I am saying is true. They respond by saying, well, where is your Father? Again, trying to discredit him. Where is your Father? And Jesus answers, you no, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And basically, what, what all the scripture asserts is that if you don't know Jesus, it's proof that you don't know the father. That's really important to hold on to for a second. Because sometimes you'll have these gatherings and they'll say, well, you know, they don't believe in Jesus, but, you know, we'll bring the Muslims together and we'll bring Jewish people together and Christians and we'll have a joint worship service because after all, at the end of the day, we're all worshiping the same God. Is that true? No. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, he that denies the Son actually denies the Father too. 
So the proof is that you know the true and living God is that you know him through his son Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. We'll come to that. Now Jesus adds something else that I want us to quickly address. In verse 15 he says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus is saying two things. First of all, Jesus is saying what he just said, I don't judge. I didn't, and does, did he not say he did not come into the world to condemn or judge the world, but what? But that the world through me, he says, might be saved. You with me on that? But somebody who knows the Word of God says, well, wait a second. In John 5, 23, Jesus actually said, the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to who? The Son. So, marry that up, baby. Well, don't worry. What are you saying this? First of all, I didn't come in my first coming to judge And second of all, when I come back and judge, I'm not going to judge superficially according to the flesh like you guys do. Uh Uh-uh. My judgment is going to be factual. And if you were to fast forward to the great white throne judgment upon which Jesus is sitting at the end of the age, it says the books will be opened. It will not be hearsay. It will not be they said, she did, Whatever, no, the books will be open and it will be impeccable records and we will be judged according to the realities of our sinful hearts and our sinful deeds. That's a, that, that really, by the way, is a sobering scene, the great white throne judgment. The small and the great, the Don Lemons and people you never heard of, are going to be raised from the dead to stand before the true and living God. Now, the good news is the whole reason Jesus came as God incarnate was to bear our judgment. He came, right, so that we who are inherently unrighteous could be declared righteous. He came so that we who are inherently guilty could be declared innocent. And following this motif of light and darkness, Jesus stepped willingly into the ultimate place of darkness, which is what? The cross. There was supernatural darkness that day, by the way. From noon to three, normally the brightest hours, God turned off the dimmer in the universe. And the judgment that you and I deserve poured out on Jesus in wave after wave of God's holy wrath. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now hold on. Let's let's not sterilize this and generalize this. God put your sins on Jesus then. The sins of darkness, the sins that you've done openly. God put them on Jesus. I mean, just just camp there when your heart starts to get hard towards God or other people. Think about the junk that Jesus took in your behalf on the cross. And then they put his lifeless body, because he died, into a dark tomb. But the good news is, His life-filled body stepped out of that dark tomb on the third day, ushering humanity into a whole new day and offering the light of salvation to all who will turn to him. And I just want to ask you then, have you turned to him? 
Have you trusted in Jesus, the light of the world? Have you repented of your sin? Because question or point two is going to evaluate a little bit the reality of your confession of faith. We just consider number one, what Jesus claims. I am God incarnate. I'm the light of the world. Now number two, we're going to look at what Jesus demands. Are you guys with me? There's a key word in verse 12. I am the light of the world, whoever what? Follows. Whoever follows me. Now here technically it's not in the imperative command, but the command to follow Jesus is in other discipleship passages. For instance, Jesus said, if any man would come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and do what? So it, it, it's a command. To follow Jesus Christ is a command. To follow. Now, what, do, what am I trying to emphasize this? The point I'm trying to make is faith has feet. Faith has legs. They might be hairy legs. They might be shaved legs. They might be really skinny legs, bird-like legs. Or they might be strong legs. But faith has legs. What I'm trying to say is true faith ain't static. You just don't sit where you were when you first met Jesus. Faith has feet. Faith gets after it. Faith follows Jesus. Faith lays us up some kicks and gets after it. True saving faith is not merely a one-time decision. In some lickety-split prayer somebody led you through. Now, of course, faith begins at a certain point in time. We're dead and then we're made alive. But true faith is manifested in a lifelong direction of following Jesus in the present. Faith has feet. Let me tell you who believes in the Scripture. The devil believes. You believe in one God? Ha, ha, ha. You do great. The devils believe and tremble. The demons believe. That's in James chapter 2. Many of these people listening believed in Jesus, it says. Simon the magician wanted to raise his game. Oh, give me the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, 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 I'll follow Jesus. He believed. You know what happened with him, right? And Judas Iscariot, he looked like quite the believer for a minute there, and yet he's the son of perdition. All those entities I mentioned end up lost. You see, there is something called dead faith. The Scripture talks about dead faith, which is kind of an oxymoron. Those two words that don't go together, because faith, real faith, has feet. And yet, dead faith. So what do you, what do you mean? Well, I want you to think about it this way. There's something called head faith. That's not in the Bible, but this is a biblical truth. And there's something called heart faith. And understanding the difference between head faith and heart faith will help us understand the difference between dead faith and real faith. What's the difference? Head faith stays between your ears. You, you might be able to profound, uh, articulately uh, expound and are. Great theology. I can tell you about Reformed theology and dispensationalism and this, all that. But it never makes its way down into your heart and changes your character and changes your direction. 
heart faith actually drops down to your feet and gets you moving in the direction of Jesus. Tons of people have been told, pray this prayer after me, and you can have your ticket punched, and you're on the train into God's kingdom. And sometimes, speaking of Reformed theology, people get just enough Reformed theology to aid and abet that delusion, that they're saved when they're not. Man, I must be in because I would never even want to pray that prayer unless God had first chosen me. Let me give you an inconvenient little letter in TULIP. It's P, perseverance of the saints. Those who truly belong will follow all by the gift of God's grace, but they will follow. Simon prayed a prayer, right? And he was lost. And there is a reason we are told in Scripture to make our calling and election sure. And I want to just cross-reference a few verses and read them without comment just to make the point we are to make our calling and election sure. 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And your virtue with knowledge, that matters. And your knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with, never goes out of date with God, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you can read the stats about the numbers of people who confess Jesus is kyrios. Jesus is theos. And yet, there's no difference in the way they think about God in the way they think about the issues of culture, in the way they live, than the average person of the world who does not confess Jesus is Kyrios or Jesus is Theos. There is no real care and interest in God and in God's Word and in God's family, the church, with all of her warts and blemishes and in God's kingdom agenda on earth right now. Listen, let's say you're walking down the street and a dog starts talking to you. And the dog says, hey, come here, I want to tell you something. I'm a fish. (laughs) The dog has no scales. It's not swimming even on top of water, let alone through the water, breathing in the water, the dog is a dog. It barks. It's got fur and a few fleas. Are you going to say, well, thank you, dog. You're actually a fish because you said you were. 
Now, if it looks like a dog and smells like a dog and barks like a dog, guess what? It ain't a fish. It's a, it's a dog. Do you get where I'm going? A lot of people think they got their ticket punched, but they ever, never actually got on the train. True faith, to keep with that metaphor, has wheels. True faith has feet. Obedience of faith is what it says in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. In other words, obedience that is faith, or faith that is obedience. See, those who have truly come to Jesus follow him. That's it. You grow in your orthopraxy, orthodontist, straight teeth. Orthopraxy is straight doctrine, straight teaching about God. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy is straight living for God. You actually live for God. Now, of course, of course, of course, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in our Christian walk, right? Maybe there's going to be a lot of ebbs and flows, right? We see that in the seasons itself. There are times of deadness and dormancy, and we all experience the dark nights of our soul. So it's not like nothing but we live in a beautiful greenhouse our whole walk. I'm not saying that. There are times of deadness and dormancy, but there are also times of new shoots of growth coming through, right? New layers and levels of fruit. Because in the end, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become anew. Please, preach it. Yes, thank you. In other words, faith has what? Feet. It follows. So what have we seen? We've seen, first of all, what Jesus claims, I am God incarnate, the light of the world. What Jesus demands, simply real faith, faith that follows. Now, third and finally, what Jesus promises. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in what? Darkness, but will have the light of of life. Now, there's so much I could say here, but I, I want to boil this down to three, three awesome aspects of this promise. We'll have the light of life, okay? Number one, God will reveal your sin as you walk in the light. As you walk in the light, God will, re- will reveal your sin. In fact, John 3 makes the case that one of the reasons people don't turn to Jesus and the light is because they don't want the light to show the deeds of their darkness. So they would rather remain in darkness than come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved, is what the text says. When you follow Jesus, God will reveal your sin. Now, you confessed sin when you came to Jesus, right? But I have to tell you this. The sin you confess when you came to Jesus was the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg of sin that you will confess as you walk with Jesus throughout the course of your life. God doesn't let us see all the sin because if he did, we couldn't even handle it, right? Because we're just learning about grace. And, of course, somebody here is saying, well, what? that doesn't sound like light reveals sin to me. It takes a renewed heart to like this aspect, doesn't it? And even as believers, we ain't so fancy about it when God reveals sin that we haven't seen, right? But in the end, we know it's good because sin robs, steals, and destroys. Sin, as the old preacher says, takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. 
Walking with Jesus reveals those things that would lead us to heartbreak. And as you follow Jesus, he, he will simply light up compartments in your heart that you haven't seen yet. It's like if you have a, a room in your house that you've kind of just let stack up and left it alone, and you go in there and say, I'm going to get after it, and you turn the light on, and like, oh, my goodness, this is going to take eight weekends to clean out this room. But you, you start to work on it, right, because the light has gone on, and you reveal what you need to clean up. So think of, think of a long, wide corridor, and there's lights like every 50 yards, and every section, the light goes on. You're like, ooh, there's junk there i got to deal with. i got to remove this debris. i got to clean that up. i got to wax that. I mean, it's just bad, but you clean up as you go. That's a parable for the life, a life of walking with Jesus down the corridor of life. He's going to turn on a light at each season. Now, you're going to be repenting of different things as you walk down the corridor of life with Jesus. There are certainly sins that are more prevalent in a younger person, Right? But then there's the sin of middle, sins that are prevalent with middle age and older people and single people and married people. So the seasons of sin that you battle with may change, but what will never change is your need to repent of sin as the light of Jesus reveals that's in the hidden corridors of your heart. And I would go on to say that the, where there is no revealing of sin, it just shows you probably ain't walking in the light. Because the closer you get to Jesus the brighter his light becomes. In my office at home, I have a patterned carpet and a dim light that comes from the window. I sometimes, with my failing eyesight, can't find something that I've dropped on the ground, but when I turn on this really bright light, whoo, man, I need to vacuum that carpet because there's a lot there. And the reality is, the closer you get to Jesus, the more sin you're going to see that you need to repent of. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way, the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over holiness which remains yet in him. So one way to ask is, how is the feet on your faith going? How are you following Jesus is to ask this question, what's your repenting looking like? How is your repenting going? And I do one other cross-reference, if you allow me. First John, because I want you to soak in this grace. Because this is a hard point. As you walk with Jesus, he'll reveal sin. So soak in First John chapter 5, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in, in, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's the, that's the tense. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the promise is he will, will reveal sin that he has cleansed by his blood. Number two, God will guide your path. That's the promise. God will guide your path. Now, for the sake of time, I didn't give you the context, but I'll give you quickly the context. Jesus said these words during the Feast of Booths in one of the outer uh, temple courts of the temple complex. The Feast of Booths was a celebration of God's protection and provision for the Jewish people when they walked through the wilderness. 
Do you remember when they were in the wilderness, they had a pillar, a cloudy pillar by day to guide them, and what kind of pillar at night? Fire, light to guide them. Do you get the point? In fact, some would say this was in the evening, and there would have been these Jewish candle bras, the, uh, they're called menorahs, vastly casting radiant light all over the temple. They would have got what he was saying. Jesus will say in John chapter 12, verse 35, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Yet on the other hand, Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So here's the deal. As you follow Jesus, the lamp, his light, it will light your way. It will light your way to both show you danger you need to avoid and blessing you ought to pursue. Let me give you an example. Maybe this is for, for, for singles uh, who are dating and towards marriage. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship, it says, now listen, does light have with darkness? So God holds out a lamp, right, to give light in that area of dating. But he hasn't made us robots, right? Like he, he, he does give us a will to make decisions. We can choose to walk in the light and say, you know what, I'm just going to date believers. Or you can, you can choose to dim the light and experience some self-inflicted sorrow. But God says, as you walk with Jesus in the light and you obey that light, he will guide your path. And so many good things in life are not realized because we didn't trust the Lord and we chose to walk in darkness rather than in light. Psalms 37 verse 23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good woman are ordered by the Lord. And as you walk with the Lord, he won't just give you direction, but I think he'll give you clarity and perception on what's going on around you. Because when there's low light, you can't see things clearly. Can't tell you how many times deer hunting, it's last light, oh my goodness, there's a monster coming in. No, it's a big mulberry bush about 75 yards away, so don't shoot it, okay? Or first light, you see a deer, but It's actually 150 yards away, not 50 yards. It messes with your depth perception, low light. And I think when you're following Jesus, as you look at all the minefields and the issues going on in the world, if you're not following Jesus, you you may see real things that are happening, but you see it through the distorted dimness of humanism rather than the bright light of the objective truth of God's Word, where you can see it with clarity and accuracy. Now, let me give you a warning. As you walk in the light and you look at issues in the world, you will find that you are increasingly at odds with the majority. You know that, right? Like, if you walk with the Lord, you're going to find that you're going to be labeled all kinds of things. But did not Jesus say that there's a broad path that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to life? And when you see Jesus the light of the world, though you're the only one standing with him, I don't give a rip. I want to go God's way, right? 
So number one, Jesus promises he'll reveal your sin. Number two, he will guide your path. And third and finally, he will grow your fruit. Now you need four things to see a plant really take off. Well, first thing you need is good soil, right? And that's why people go out and buy top soil, good, good, rich topsoil, peat moss, things like that. You also need some good seed to put in that soil. And then what do you need? Well, you need to make sure you have some water because it won't grow without water. But you also need light. Now, <laughs> hanging out with Susan the other night, I asked her to tell me about all the various things we have grown in our backyard. I should call her Farmer Susan because it's crazy what we have there. We got strawberries, we got two blueberry bushes, uh, one lemon tree, yes, even here in Michigan, seven raspberry shoots from the gangwers. We've got rosemary, oregano, cilantro, basil, garlic, mint, ginger, lemongrass, green onions, red onions, and yellow onions. All of them are covered, I think. Can't even read my writing, but radishes and potatoes and tomatoes, um, celery, asparagus, lettuce, avocado, spinach, peas, yellow squash, and there's probably some others. There's a lot. You'd be surprised how much she packs in our little backyard. How? She's very creative. But let's say she got some really good soil, like the best rich soil, and got top-line seed and even made sure she watered them. But instead of being in the backyard, they were down in our dark basement. What would happen to that, those seeds? Not a sticking, licking, growing thing, Right? Matter of fact, we had a lemon tree that was inside. It had to be because of our winters, but it was starting to kind of wilt, and it was becoming faded and kind of falling over. And when we brought it outside, man, it, it flourished. It became healthy and vibrant and green. No, we, with all the other stuff, you have to have light. Now, the soil is our heart, right? And the seed is God's Word. And the Bible also often uses the metaphor of the Spirit being water. But you know what the light is? The light is your obedience. The light is your repentance of following Jesus. Jesus taught that. We'll get to this. He said, I am the true vine. And as you abide in me, that's obedience, that's repentance, that's following, I will bear fruit in you. And there's three kinds of fruit, and I'll hit this hard in that message, but you will, first of all, bear the fruit of change character. Because the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, and on. So, you know, if someone says, I'm a fish, but you're acting like a dog, maybe you are a dog. Because as you follow Jesus, he's going to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your soul, right? And part of that is repentance when we, when we, when we are acting like a dog. Then there's the fruit of praise, Hebrews says that we're to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanksgiving to his name. And one of the ways you can tell somebody is following Jesus is they're bearing the fruit of praise for God. And then there's the fruit of, the, the, the fruit of influencing people to Christ, of winning them to Christ. Because it says in the book of Proverbs, verse, chapter 11, verse 30, the fruit of the, of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Now, do you remember that old Wendy? i got to wrap this up. Old Wendy's commercial, that old lady says, where's the beef? That's probably a fair thing to ask. Well, where's the fruit? Is my character being changed? 
Am I offering up thanksgiving? Am I concerned about influencing people for Christ? Now, I'm going to end here. I want to end with a stunning image that puts on blast the eternal realities of John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Imagine you're walking into a city, beautiful city, clean city, safe city, full of all kinds of people, and everybody's loving and serving and caring for each other in this incredible city. The blocks are lined with food carts with all kinds of amazing and delicious delicacies. And each corner has different groups providing beautiful music that's just wafting through the streets. And you're just, you're just drinking in this incredible city. And you notice that it's incredibly bright. Not like blinding bright when you, somebody flicks the light on and you, you've been sleeping, you can hardly see, but, but a brightness that makes you see the inherent beauty of, any, of everything. Almost like when you get new glasses and you're like, oh, those are leaves. That's, just, that's not just a, a, a green blob. That kind of brightness and clarity. And you say, that's weird because I don't see a sun in the sky. And, and I don't see a moon Shining uh, sunlight down, secondary light down. And I don't see any street lights, so DTE didn't come in here and hook up street lights. What's going on? Here's what's going on. I'm talking about the new city, the new Jerusalem. And this is what it says, Revelation 21 and 23. And the city, this city, has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Did you get that? The lamp is the Lamb. So let, let's walk in the light that we might display his light. In the words of Paul in Philippians 2, may we in the midst of a wicked and twisted and perverse generation shine as lights in the world. This is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for this truth that you are, that you sent your son who is the light of the world. And God, I pray that wherever your light is shining, people would say, yes, shine, light, shine. And may they deal by the kindness and power and strength of your spirit with that truth and repentance and faith as you would call them to do that. And as we sing one last song, God, may we sing as those who have feet attached to our faith. vocal cords attached to our confession. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. May we offer up the fruit of the praise of our lips. Help us to walk in the light when we get out of here, Lord. Light in our homes. Light in our hearts. Light in those secret places that we might glorify our Father in heaven before a looking world and watching angels. In Jesus' name, amen.